Hello and welcome back to the AMPS podcast. I'm Martin Harris and today I'm going to be talking to an LA-based supervising sound editor and re-recording mixer, James Parnell. James has worked on many high-profile and very diverse projects, such as Get Out, Moonlight, Happy Death Day, Hulu's Pen 15 and Dolly Parton's Netflix series, Dolly Parton's Heartstrings. Today he's going to be talking about his work on Twisted Metal, a TV series based on the award-winning game from Sony. It'll be available from the 27th of July. James, welcome to the AMPS podcast and thank you very much for getting up so early to talk to us about your work. Yeah, anytime. First question really I'd like to put to you is how did you get interested in sound? Well, yeah, it's a long story. Um, I went to uh, university for a degree in political science um, and I was simultaneously playing in a couple of bands uh, in my hometown of Toronto and um, I was uh, recording those bands. And, you know, as time progressed and I neared the end of my degree, I kind of realized I wasn't wanting to pursue a degree in political science or journalism or anything like that. Um, And I realized that I wasn't as good a drummer as I thought I was, but I was pretty good (laughs) at recording the bands that I was playing in. Um, So I ended up going to an audio college for uh, recording and, and recording arts and, uh, specifically for music at the time, thinking I was going to end up at a music recording studio. And, um, and the college I went to had an affiliation with a UK base, uh, university in Edinburgh, Scotland. So I ended up going over to the UK for a master's degree in sound production and, um, then moved to London, worked in London for two to three years in television, and then moved to Los Angeles where I'm based now. But it was, I just, I guess I just summed up like eight years of, uh, you know, education and work in, you know, 10 seconds. But, but yeah, it started from early aspirations as a drummer <laughs> turning into a career in post-production. So no aspirations of going into politics. No, then. no, I avoided that. Well done. We, we should get on to your latest projects. Sony are releasing Twisted Metal on the 27th of July. It's a TV adaptation of Sony's apocalyptic hit list car combat game. Yeah. Um, and you were both supervising sound editor and re-recording mixer. Um, so how did you go about creating the sound world that will satisfy the fans and stay true to the intensity and vibe of the original game? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. Um, I was talking a little bit about this yesterday. You know, Twisted Metal is a, a video game franchise from the early 2000s. They've released eight video games over 17 years, starting in 1995, I think, for the original PlayStation. And um, for, for the uninitiated uh, listeners, um, in post-production, before we even get started on a sound project, we meet with the, uh, whether it's a film, it'll be the director, or uh, if it's a television show, the showrunner, and we have these things called spotting sessions where we we meet, we sit, and we talk about the sonic uh, concepts for a show. We talk about the creative direction that the team wants to take. And it became readily apparent. I, I used to play the video games when I was um, a, a young young kid. And uh, it became readily apparent that we needed to get the original sound from the video games, as much of that as possible. So we contacted, the the very first thing is we contacted Sony PlayStation and Sony Archival and requested that we get access to the sound. So they had to go through there. They have like these, you know, uh, giant server rooms with everything that PlayStation has ever done. They unarchived these original sound files from the video game and sent them over to us on a, you know, I think it was like a four terabyte hard drive. 
And, you know, it was super helpful because we were able to listen to the, um, the sounds, but it be, you know, the, in doing so, we figured out obviously those fourth gen, fifth gen consoles, um, those discs could only hold so much. And all of the audio for the video games at that time were low bitrate MP3s. And the game sounded, when you were playing it, you, it's not like you would notice because the games were so immersive and the explosions were so impactful in the video games. But, um, but you know, it became readily apparent that we weren't able to use the, the, the sound from the video games. So we had to do this process of kind of replicating and elaborating um, from that. Um, and the second aspect of that was during these spotting sessions, um, we had a wonderful showrunner named Michael Jonathan Smith uh, from Cobra Kai. And he was uh, obviously a fan of the uh, original video game franchise. And he was adamant that the car combat had to sound as massive and as gnarly as possible <laughs> um, and, and kind of pay homage to the original franchise game. So we broke down the, the task by building the vehicles that they were driving in themselves and kind of mirroring that as a reflection of their character in the show. So John, our, our protagonist, who's played by Anthony Mackie, drives a car called Evelyn. In the show, you find out it's his only friend in this post-apocalyptic world that takes him from one place to another, and it's it's the only person that he can trust, or person, I say, vehicle. And um, he uh, he puts a lot of love into it, so we wanted to make the car sound really slick and polished, even though the rest of the world was kind of in disarray. So we, we built uh, a turbo boost for all of his accelerations, and we... We wanted his car to sound really like lean and mean. So we married it with like um, big cat sound design. So tiger roars, you know, big cat roars. Yeah. And um, conversely, a character like Sweet Tooth, for example, we, you know, his, his uh, ice cream truck is just, you know, janky and oily and hot. And, you know, it, it needed to sound like it was being held together by just nuts and bolts. <laughs> so we made it sound as rickety as possible. And we, you know, we got vehicle recordings from like old military Jeeps and tanks and, um, you know, and, and just added in like metal shakes and vibrations to kind of enhance the vehicular sounds. And then the same thing was done with the, the weapons. So each car has their own set of weapons John's car being slick, the weapon sounded really slick, and you know Sweet Tooth's truck being really you know, greasy and oily. We had to make those guns sound really ratchety and you know stuff like that. What's your favorite approach to achieving these distinctive um, individual sounds when you're creating these unusual effects? Oh gosh, um, so I I was uh, blessed to have a, a great team that I was working with um, at the studio. We we did this at, um, you know, I think especially when it came to vehicular sound design, we use um, a plugin called Envy uh, from Cargo Cult that's amazing for sound design, but you can take you know, a, a simple engine roar and then you can find, for example, in what we just spoke about, John's uh, car, Evelyn, you can find a big cat, like a tiger roar, and you can overlay them on top of one another. And they sort of convolve, do they? Exactly. They, they morph and they detune and you can control pitch and it sounds organic at the end of it. Like you, you still hear the engine roaring, but it's given this like breadth and depth to the sound that like doesn't quite sound natural, but sounds really cool against picture, you know? Right. Um, we talk about sound design a lot these days and there's yeah. become a word that is bandied about. Um, how do you define the word sound design? Yeah, um, it's interesting. And I, I'm sure you, uh, Mark, follow on on all of the you know sound forums. There has been this discussion about like where sound design picks up from where sound effects editorial 
leaves off, is there, you know, is there a distinction? You know, I'm kind of of the mindset that like the minute you start designing sounds for things that are otherworldly or you are taking something, say a car recording and changing it into something that doesn't exist. Um, I think that's when you start venturing into the world of, of sound design. And I, I, um, it's an incredibly like, I don't know, pertinent question. It's quite an emotive thing, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. So what do you think makes a good sound designer? Good sound designer. Oh man. Um, I mean, this answer is going to sound kind of cheesy, but I think it's just, it's grounding the sound that you're creating against picture. I think it's, you know, there's, there's a temptation to make things sound like bombastic and huge and amazing, but it also has to glue to the images that you're seeing. And um, interestingly on, you know, on Twisted Metal, we were getting our visual effects into the first couple of days of the mix. So we would get updated picture and all of a sudden there'd be, you know, and this isn't sound design per se, but I can imagine this on feature films, like we'd get tracer rounds coming past the screen and all this stuff that we have to add. Um, and, you know, that's often the case, say you were on a big budget feature. Um, well, I'll just pull one out of that, like Transformers or Dune or one of these huge epic movies that they do such a great job on. You know, you need to make things sound massive, but you also need to make sure that they marry the picture really well. And I think that that's key. It's like you need to evoke a response from the audience, yes. make the sound believable, but also make sure that it it plays against picture and it doesn't sound you want people to believe what they're seeing without second without a second question. Yeah. You know. You talked there about some picture changes. <laughs> um, how do you cope with picture changes at such a late stage? Yeah, I mean, it can be challenging, especially because, you know, on a television show, the post schedule, the post-production schedule is set. I mean, it can change, but it's you try and adhere to that as much as possible. Interestingly, with Twisted Metal, so there are 10 episodes. We had a, a schedule that looked like five episodes week by week. So it was, you know, episode one on one week. Next week would be episode two, episode three. And we had a week to mix these um, gargantuan episodes. There was a break week in, in the middle. So we had five. There was a, a single break week and six. And, it, you know, we were getting picture. I mean, kudos to the VFX team on this show, because it, I think the opening seven minutes in episode seven had 400 VFX shots in, in just seven minutes of footage. <laughs> wow. And and you'll see it when you, see, you know, when, when the episodes are released. But, you know, when you do get all of that stuff, it's a process of figuring out, OK, has the mix changed? Firstly, like, do the VFX mean that I'm rebalancing this? Because are we telling different story points with the sound in the show? Um, if they haven't, are they necessarily? Do we need to add something to them? Is it is it is it background? Or are they adding uh, texture and layer? Or are we legitimately seeing like in the case of episode one, it was a mall chase shootout combat sequence. We had all of these trace arounds added that were flying by camera right by your face. And, you know, you have to you have to uh, put sound for that. And I remember it was like the day before the first day that that MJ was coming on the stage and I was sitting there like we need to jump on this right now because this can't be missing from what we were going to review. So it was a process of just quickly going to our sound libraries of of weapons builds, picking out some of the most amazing ricochets and, you know, zip buys and stuff like that and and throwing them in the mix and, and just balance them and panning them and. I can quickly send time codes across Slack to our sound designers or sound effects editors, and they can push me, you know, single, single ad tracks and pro tools, or they'll push me like a a multiple, multiple track ad session that I can pull in and quickly pan that obviously paired with, you know, Hey, 
the, you know, letting them know the ad you just sent me isn't quite sitting. Can you come by the mix stage and I'll play you in context. And they, sometimes the face, like when they arrive on stage and look and it's like, whoa, like everything's big. The music's playing like, okay, we need to go bigger with this. You know, it's a, it's a process of discovery for sure. <laughs> that sounds a pretty slick workflow. Yeah. You were talking about the music earlier and the music being big. What kind of relationship did you have with the composers, um, Leah Byronberg and Zach Robinson, and even Janine Scalise, the music supervisor? Did you get involved at an early stage with them? All three of those people are just the most amazing people. So Leo Byronberg and Zach Robinson, I had the pleasure of working with um, earlier in my career on Pen15, which was a show that went out on Hulu. Um, and it, um, you know, was, it was fortunate enough to win, I think, an Emmy Award for Best Writing or something like that. But it was just a, a fantastic show. And that's when I initially met Leo and Zach, uh, who are incredibly talented performers. They just won uh, or just nominated for an Emmy on Weird, the Al Yankovic story. So just fantastic. Uh, group of of uh, composers um, and Janine Scalise is just an incredibly talented music supervisor. She was the one who you know licensed all of the amazing uh, music that, that the as we call needle drops or songs that you hear. So um, like in the opening of episode one, rock superstar, um, you know all of these huge uh, iconic songs from the kind of early two thousands, the early noughties. When we went to these spotting sessions that I mentioned earlier, Janine and Zach and Leah would be in the spotting sessions and we'd kind of do this like watch a scene down, anything from the music department that we need to talk about, anything from music that we need to talk about. And, you know, in these early cuts, MJ would be putting in these like, you know, really memorable songs. And sometimes, you know, there's a budget for each episode that Janine has to kind of adhere to. And her job is to be creative and try to figure out how do we get the exact same feel with either different music or we're really, that song can't be changed in that sequence. We need to use, uh, you know, Cypress Hill. We need to use uh, Len. We need to use uh, Cisco, <laughs> the thong song, you know? So so some of the sequences are crafted around these songs and others it's like, okay, we know what you're going for, but that song would cost $100,000 to license for this, you know, 10 seconds in a sequence. So we can't afford that. It was just kind of this creative process of like, we would get music from the music team. It was mixed by Phil McGowan, who's an incredible score mixer. Janine would provide us with all of the source music um, or songs. And uh, yeah, it was just a great, it was kind of a great partnership. They're really talented people. When you're in the mix stage, what happens then if there's a clash between music and effects? Where do you go with that? Yeah, um, this is a really good question. So Twisted Metal is an incredibly loud show. I mean, every episode has insane car combat, explosions, gunfire. And obviously we have to adhere to Peacock's level spec, which was minus 24, you know, and um, it, luckily it was dial, dialogue norms. So we, we could we could hit that spec, but we also didn't want the action scenes to sound so crazily loud that when you arrived at a dialogue scene, you were turning up your, your volume. We were trying to smooth that out as much as possible. Add to that that like, you know, the music for Twisted Metal is big. It's, you know, lots of low end. It's rock um, inspired. I guess in terms of mixing, especially when we are talking about big vehicular combat sequences and it has big music and big effects, it's often a process of, as you're mixing, trying to identify the story beats within a sequence. So there's a, in the trailer, if you watch the trailer, you'll see that it's, it's uh, the opening of episode one. It's John drift doing a drift in his car around an information sign in a shopping mall. 
and there's like bullets being fired at him and he's swerving around this thing and looking at the the mall directions on how to get out of the mall and avoid being killed. And, you know, if you listen to that, there's only three sounds that are really playing. It's like his dialogue, most important, and that's the story, the information, the story that is being told. There's a little bit, you can hear a little bit of his tire squealing as he's drifting around and then the bullets hitting the uh, information sign, the metal poles. And it's, it's those aggressive fader moves and the, the decision of like, okay, in this moment, these three things are all we need to hear. And then the minute we snap out of that, like on the frame change, music up, uh, huge car squeals, gunfire. And then anytime we need to have dialogue, pull the mix down. And oftentimes it takes a lot of repeating or looping a scene to just get that exact fader move right. So it sounds natural and you don't hear the change. Um, so that when you listen to everything, all of those aggressive fader moves play as like a believable sequence where you're like, oh, I should be listening to dialogue right now. And then we snap out. Okay, now it's okay to hear the cars and you don't question it. Um, you're given such a, uh, you know, a, an abundance of sound that it's like, which one are we featuring? You know, it's, it's like, there's, is there a point to playing the cars when this music is so amazing is, you know, and there were moments where we, we brought the cars almost completely down to, to feature the music. Really great example of that is in the episode 10 when Stone and um, John are having their uh, run at chicken against each other uh, in their cars. There's a, an amazing piece by uh, Zach and Leo. And it was, uh, there was almost no point in playing the, the car engines because it was, the music was doing all of the talking story-wise. The music for the, um, those sequences is so big that oftentimes what I was, I was using um, Spanner, which would help me control the center channel because we were getting 5-1 music. And a lot of the times, you know, gunfire and, I mean, it lives in, in the LCR, but it, you know, a lot of times all the dialogues in the center channel. So I was using, was automating Spanner to pull down the center channel in the music and then push it back up to give us a little bit of space for all of that to cut through. They're definitely working those faders hard. Yeah. <laughs> With these big in-your-face mixes, was there a chance for you to explore dynamic range at all um, and actually go down to near silence at any point? Yeah, yeah. Episode one has um, this sequence where Quiet and her brother's Quiet is played by Stephanie Beatriz and her brother are escaping Agent Stone, who's played by um, Thomas Hayden Church, and they've been caught and they're on their knees next to one another about to be executed. And they're given a gun and put to a decision as to which one will take their own life to spare the other. And the brother ends up um, offing himself to save his sister. When it happens, everything goes down to almost silence. Um, you can hear a little, like a tiny bit of low end rumble. And then we gradually hear the voices of Agent Stone's kind of henchmen in the law, you know, laughing and you know, smirking and reacting to it and kind of making fun of the situation. And it's kind of bleeding into her uh, subconscious as she kind of snaps out of this like horrific event that's happened. Um, so we went down to almost complete silence in episode one and then sprang back up. Okay, James, just to move you outside of your fabulously Starship Enterprise mix stage, <laughs> when you go outside, what sounds pique your interest? What sounds do you really notice? Wow, that's a good question. I feel as though, especially in like the past two years, I've been, I, I'm using the term waking up sonically that more than ever before, like I'll, I live across the street from a school and sometimes the windows will be open and like the bell will ring and I'll, you know, like I'll step outside and get to my car and you'll just start taking in sounds from your neighborhood. And it's almost like you're, 
it's weird. It's like my brain is sound minor and I've, I've, I've built this like library of my local neighborhood in my head. It sounds super nerdy, but uh, (laughs) I moved to Los Angeles in 2015. I think Los Angeles has a, a unique sound to any city. I was living in London before, which definitely has a unique sound to any other city that I've lived in. Um, and I think that just like driving around and listening and observing things when you, you know, when you're in a park, or whether you're on the street or whether you're in Beverly Hills or downtown and kind of just being aware of your surroundings and listening to like the unique sonic elements of a city and the sound of a different trash car picking up garbage or how the taxis sound different, you know, and it's those things that kind of help you in your sound work, I think, yeah. throughout your career, because it's like you you understand what sounds will work, you know, where you should go with your sound editorial. And I think it, it gives you like a unique blueprint to operate from uh, when you're building like sonic worlds. Yeah. What were the differences between working in post-production in London and in the States? London was fantastic. It was kind of, you know, it was a, a, an amazing place to start from. I worked at a, a post-production studio called Coda Post-Production on Charlotte Street. So a lot of the work we were doing there was kind of uh, either advertising or reversioning of U.S. programs. Um, there was some terrestrial television that we worked on. It was more fast-paced in London. We were working on um, beta tape like the HDSR tapes, we'd put it in, we'd ingest the stereo mix and the mix minus, you know, we'd have a couple of quick seconds to sort the edits out, like rough edits. A client would come in with a voiceover artist, they'd jump in the booth, you'd do a full recording session, voiceover talent would leave, you'd order lunch. As you were ordering lunch, you were prepping the VO. You'd sit, you'd quickly eat your lunch, and then you'd sit with a, a, a producer and, you know, and, and mix this uh, hour-long show, this 44-minute show, and do conforms all in one day. And it was like the best, the best possible school I could have ever asked for in terms of like getting good and getting good fast. You know, it was, um, you have to prioritize, you have to resource manage, you have to, um, you know, uh, be able to think on your feet and pivot. And it was, um, it was just a wonderful atmosphere to do that. And I can't thank uh, the team over there enough for helping me. That does sound like it was a great training ground. By contrast, what differences have you found in LA? The first thing I noticed when I moved ours, the, the size of the facilities is just like enormous. And just, I, I'm, you know, I'm sure you know, but like LA is huge and it's like a city of cities connected by highways. So, you know, there's like dub stages all over town in these places that you would never know about. Um, and they're often just like massive uh, 1,500, 2,000 square foot dub stages, 3,000 square foot dub stages. And full Atmos. And it's just, uh, you know, it's got all of the bells and whistles and um, the budgets are often higher because they're working on like, you know, multi-million dollar feature films and big budget television. And there's a lot more at stake and there's more producers, uh, more executive producers and more creatives in the room with you. So often days on a playback, I'll have like five, six people in a room. All of them will be throwing notes and you'll need to synthesize those notes in your head and try to kind of weave through and achieve what all of the notes are suggesting, you know, hit all the notes and make everyone happy all at the same time. (laughs) Yes. Um, My final question, what advice would you have for new sound editors and mixers starting out on their careers? I was asked this question yesterday um, and it's a great question. It's a great question. And my answer was, you shouldn't say no to anything when you're starting out. And I know that that sounds kind of counterintuitive because you, you know, you want to make like strategic, you know, you want to like 
make sure that what you're working on is uh, going to help you in your career and stuff like that. And I'm of the opposite mindset, which is when you're starting out, I feel like you can't afford to say no to anything. It's you need, you need time in front of the console, time in a room with clients. You need time in front of Pro Tools. And I, I mean, and this sounds a bit crazy, but like, you know, back in 2015, when I moved to LA, I was on a, uh, you know, a six month Canadian exchange visa where I you know, wasn't allowed to work in the country. And I was, uh, you know, I, I had just, uh, just gotten my first job, just changed visas. And I was like, this is it. This is the time I have to make this happen. So I would take on freelance projects. I do my day job at the studio from nine to seven. Uh, and then I take on freelance projects and start work at 8 p.m. on those and work until three in the morning and then go home and crash for four hours and then get back up and shower and go back to the studio. And, you know, it was it, it was probably unhealthy to do that. But at the same time, it was about putting in putting in the time behind the console in front of Pro Tools um, with your uh, fellow sound designers who were helping you on those projects who were of equal motivation and um, making sure that you weren't um, kind of saying no to things and, uh, just I, basically affording yourself the opportunities. So when the big shows come along, like twisted metal, uh, for me, uh, you're in a position to make sure that you can deliver and deliver everything that they, that the clients are expecting and make the show sound as, as, um, badass as possible, you know? <laughs> James, thank you so much for talking to us at the Amps podcast. Um, we'll be looking out for Twisted Metal from the 27th of July, released on Sony. Um, thanks so much. Good luck with your next project, and I do hope we speak again. Thanks, Martin. I really appreciate it. So that was James Parnell, supervising sound editor and re-recording mixer over in LA. We were chatting afterwards, and this happened. Do you, Martin, do you happen to know Rob Walker? <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah, Rob was my instructor at Edinburgh Napier University. <laughs> he was our previous chair of AMPS. Yeah, I have him to thank for, for everything after that, you know. So anyway, a small connection. I was like, oh, the AMPS podcast is going to be great. And uh, maybe Martin might know Rob. So Our very own Rob Walker mentioned there. And it's great that he's inspired somebody else so high up our profession. It just shows how important it is to have mentors of the highest calibre to inspire the next generations. If you have an idea for a future AMPS podcast or just want to tell us what you want to hear more of, please get in touch. You can reach out to us via email at ampspodcast at gmail.com or via Twitter, which is at ampspodcast. We'd love to hear from you and thanks for listening. Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts? Well, we're a part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to check out the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.